Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon, and today's show is titled, Taking Flight. Did any birds swoop over your head today while you were walking? Did you hear any birds today? Scrub jays walk about the rails on my deck early in the morning and vocalize if there's any tardiness in laying a row of peanuts on the rail. They recognize the sound of the sliding door that tells them breakfast is about to be delivered. A flicker wraps on the shiny cover over our chimney opening. He's a metal pecker. I'm hard-pressed to locate poems that tell us what it's like to be a bird. They're too busy flying to be composing poems. So the poems I am familiar with tend to emphasize the human response to birds. With the exception of those scrub jays and other birds that might be alert to human-sponsored food sources, birds might not think much of us might not even pause to consider what it's like to be a human. But we ponder them. Consider Emily Dickinson's poem, A Bird Came Down the Walk. The speaker observes a bird, not named, not assigned membership in any particular bird family, as it moves awkwardly on the ground, eats food of its own choosing, rejects the speaker's offer of food, and then it soars away. Simple enough, it seems. Let's hear Dickinson's poem, A Bird Came Down the Walk. A bird came down the walk. He did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow, raw. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass and then hopped sidewise to the wall to let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger, cautious. I offered him a crumb, and he unfolded his feathers and rowed him softer home than oars divide the ocean to silver for a seam or butterflies off banks of noon, leap plashless as they swim. That's Emily Dickinson's A Bird Came Down the Walk. The speaker's perspective shifts as she looks down, then up. The bird eats the worm raw, as though it had a choice, and rejects the human-offered crumb. The bird then flies away. We always stay behind. Consider this next poem that focuses on bird's song. Isaac Rosenberg, a painter and poet from a Jewish family in England, served in the First World War in his mid-twenties. He wrote some of the most iconic poetry of the war, though he did not survive it to appreciate the attention given to his work. In trench warfare, some of the fighting unfolded in the dark with soldiers on patrol. Roll calls conducted by officers at dawn could be grim as the men recognized who in their company was missing 
after a night in no man's land. The speaker in Rosenberg's poem, Returning, We Hear the Larks, serves as the voice of his whole regiment, relying on we rather than I. Hearing the lark indicates they made it through to the pre-dawn, but the opening and closing short stanzas emphasize this satisfaction is very temporary. This is Isaac Rosenberg's poem, Returning, We Hear the Larks. Somber the night is, and though we have our lives, we know what sinister threat looks lurks there. Dragging these anguished limbs, we only know this poison-blasted track opens on our camp on a little safe sleep. But hark, joy, joy, strange joy, lo, heights of night ringing with unseen larks, music showering on our upturned listening faces. Death could drop from the dark as easily as song, but song only dropped, like a blind man's dreams on the sand by dangerous tides, like a girl's dark hair, for she dreams no ruin lies there, or her kisses where a serpent hides. That's Isaac Rosenberg's Returning, We Hear the Larks. Rather than German shells, the lark's song dropped from the pre-dawn dark. And what did those larks think as the quiet of night was constantly disrupted by the high volume of constant shelling and their habitats were destroyed as the photos of muddy, treeless landscapes from the Western Front attest. In their one pre-dawn together, Juliet and Romeo disputed which bird song they heard. Romeo said it was the lark and that he needed to flee before light. Juliet said, No, my husband, of just a few hours, it's the nightingale, so stay with me a while longer. Let's listen in as they conduct in bed their first bedroom chat, which happens to be their final dialogue together. Juliet says, Wilt thou be gone? It's not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Nightly she sings on yond pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. Romeo. It was the lark, the herald of the morn, no nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Night's candles are burnt out, and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. I must be gone and live, or stay and die. Juliet persists in her argument. Yond light is not daylight. I know it, I. Therefore, 
stay yet. Thou needest not be gone. Romeo replies fatalistically, Let me be taken, let me be put to death, I am content, so thou wilt have it so. I'll say, that is not the lark whose notes do beat, the vaulty heavens so high above our heads. I have more care to stay than will to go. Come, death, and welcome. Juliet wills it so. How is it, my soul? Let's talk. It is not day. Alarmed, Juliet then urges that he flee, and she changes the tone of her whole argument. Be gone, away. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. Some say the lark makes sweet division. This does not so, for she divideth us. Some say the lark and loathed toad changed eyes. Oh, now I would they had changed voices, too since arm from arm that voice doth us affray, hunting thee hence with hunts up to the day. Oh, now be gone, more light and light it grows. So Romeo has successfully pled his case, and he escapes out Juliet's window. Juliet had to be mock-arguing, certainly she could distinguish the nightingale from the lark's harsh discords. The nightingale is known for its outstanding song. Bird expert David Sibley tells us the nightingale is considered one of the world's finest avian singers with a remarkable range of songs. Irish poet W.B. Yeats spent much time at the estate of his friend and supporter, Lady Gregory. She owned Cool Park outside of Galway in the west of Ireland. Over many years, Yeats stayed in Cool Park, writing and reflecting in a setting so far from the crowded streets of Dublin or London. On the surface, his poem, The Wild Swans at Cool, written in 1916, is a purely descriptive account of the pond at Cool Park, and the swan's presence enhances the quiet setting. But we also know that swans tend to mate for life. Again, bird expert David Sibley says most swans are monogamous with long-lasting pair bonds. With that in mind, we might also consider this poem a sly commentary on Yeats' own personal life. This is W.B. Yeats' poem, The Wild Swans at Cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky, 
Upon the brimming water, among the stones, are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away? That's W. B. Yeats' poem, The Wild Swans at Cool. The speaker tallies up 59 swans on the pond. Why the odd number? Well, there could be a yearling swan who returned to the family group, or, more likely, a solo adult, and the speaker perhaps identifies with this one odd number. Yeats himself was 51 when he wrote this, and for decades he was a rejected suitor. Soon, though, he would marry and become a father late in his life. But in 1916, sitting by the cool park pond, he may have experienced an attack of self-pity and projected his concerns onto the swans. He says in the poem, I have looked upon these brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. In contrast to what he may fear is his continued solo status. The hearts of the swans, he tells us, have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. A much more contemporary poem, On the Marriage of Friends, by Irish-born Greg Delante, is premised on the long-term monogamy of swans as his opening line, a direct address to the newlywed friends, informs us. So you have chosen the way of the swan. Delante's poem names a variety of birds, some whose mating habits make them poor models to hold up to a human couple on their wedding day such as herons, who apparently remain monogamous only part of the year during breeding season. 
Also, the female dotterel, a shorebird who leaves her first mate to complete incubation and rear the young, and then she goes off and mates with another male, whom she also typically abandons after egg-laying, again, according to bird expert Sibley. The poem refers to the songs of birds not found on our northwest coast, the black-collared barbet and the red-eyed vario. Greg Delante's latest collection of poems is titled No More Time, and his next book, The Professor of Forgetting, is due to be published in fall of 2023, both volumes from Louisiana State University Press. Delante teaches at St. Michael's College in Vermont, and he is a U.S. citizen as well as an Irish citizen. But enough preliminaries. Let's hear Greg Delante's poem on the marriage of friends. So you have chosen the way of the swan, the way, perhaps, that is not natural to everyone, but I will not harp on about heron, bluebird, or dotterel, nor how the male flycatcher pairs with two females, keeping a mile between, so neither cops how the other shares the same philandering gentleman. Did you know the life-coupling way of the swan is also that of the crow? And there'll be crow-black days you'll caw at each other with blind gusto. But there'll be times when you'll sing the duet of the black-collared barbet with the first part of the song sung by one and the second by the mate. We wish you now many such duet days and sing for you like the red-eyed vario who sings non-stop through the summer blaze. On this day you take the way of swan and crow. Delante asked in his poem on the marriage of friends, did you know the life-coupling way of the swan is also that of the crow? I admit I did not. Lucia Perilla's poem, The Crows Start Demanding Royalties, avoids consideration of their mating habits to focus on their anger. We may admire crows in flight, but Perillo claims they'd prefer to have arms. Who would have guessed? Her poem uses the verb fossic, which means to search about or to ferret out. This is Lucia Perillo's poem, The Crows Start Demanding Royalties. Of all the birds, they are the ones who mind their being armless most. Witness how, when they walk, their heads jerk back and forth like rifle bolts. How they heave their shoulders into each stride 
as if they hoped that by some chance new bones there would come popping out with a boxing glove on the end of each. Little Elvises, the hairdo slicked with too much grease, they convene on my lawn to strategize for their class action suit. Flight, they would trade in a New York minute for a black muscle car and a fist on the shift at any stale green light. But here in my yard, by the -the jack-in-the-box dumpster, they can only fossick in the grass for remnants of the world's stale buns. And this, despite all the crow poems that have been written, because men like to see themselves as crows. The head jerk performed in the rearview mirror, the dark brow commanding the rainy weather. So I think I know how they must feel, ripped off, shook down, taken to the cleaners. What they'd like to do now is smash a phone against a wall, but they can't. So each one flies to a bare branch and screams. That's Lucia Perillo's poem, The Crows Start Demanding Royalties. It will be difficult for me to see a crow in the future and not think of little Elvises with their hair slicked back. Sibley explains that crows and ravens are purportedly among the most intelligent of all birds and have the ability to exploit human activity for their own benefit. They're also both labeled songbirds, though we might agree with Perillo's poem that crows sound like they're screaming. At best, their songs are croaky melodies. The speaker of Robert Wrigley's poem, Ravens at Deer Creek, hears the ravens sing, observes them in his remote wilderness location, finds them fascinating, but also knows what they take from him. This is Robert Wrigley's poem, Ravens at Deer Creek. Something's dead in that stand of fur one ridge over. Ravens circle and swoop above the trees, while others swirl up from below like paper scraps blackened in a fire. In the mountains, in winter, it's true. Death is a joyful flame, those caws and cartwheels pure celebration. It is a long, snowy mile I've come to see this, thanks to dumb luck or grace. I meant only a hard ski through powder, my pulse in my ears and sweat, the pace like a mainspring, my breath louder and louder until I stopped, body and engine ticking to be cool. And now the birds. I watch them and think, maybe I have seen these fairy ones, speaking without words, clear-eyed and clerical, ironic, peering in at me 
from the berm of snow outside my window where I sprinkled a few crumbs of bread. We are neighbors in the neighborhood of silence. They've accepted my crumbs, and when the fire was hot and smokeless, huddled in ranks against the cold at the top of the chimney. And they're not without gratitude. Though I'm clearly visible to them now, they swirl on and sing, and if in the early dusk I should fall on my way back home, and, injured, weeping, rail against the stars and frigid night, and crawl a while on my hopeless way, then stop, numb, easing into the darkening white like a candle, I know they'll stay with me, keeping watch, moving limb to limb, angels down Jacob's ladder, wise to the moon and waiting for me, simple as sin, that they may know the delicacy of my eyes. That's Robert Wrigley's The Ravens at Deer Creek. On this episode of Poems for Company, Taking Flight, we've heard about larks, nightingales, swans, crows, and ravens. Let's end with a short poem, one that seems to offer practical advice for those of us who are amateurs at identifying birds. This is Naomi Shiab Nye's poem, Lying While Birding, from her 2011 volume, Transfer. Lying While Birding. Yes, yes, I see it. So they won't keep telling you where it is. That's Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, Lying While Birding. Let's hear it once more. Yes, yes, I see it, so they won't keep telling you where it is. There will be future shows on birds. There's always more for us and them to say. This has been Poems for Company. You may go to kmun.org to find a podcast of the show along with my website that lists the poems I have read today and on every show. Our theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun from a CD live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more poems with you at the same time next month.